Amen. What a beautiful song. What a great message. Thank you, Wilma. If that isn't love. Look at Psalm 103. Tonight we're going to take a few moments and look at this great psalm, which tells us about the wonderful forgiveness of God. As Christians, we talk so much about the forgiveness of God that I think it's very easy for us to begin to take it for granted just how amazing it is to lose a sense of how wonderful and truly unusual it is for God, who is perfectly holy, to be willing to forgive people who don't deserve it, all of us. And yet, He has done that. He's willing to do that. And Psalm 103 expresses the sense of wonder that we should always feel about God and his forgiveness, that he has a forgiving heart. So look at Psalm 103, and then we'll come back through it in more detail. Let me read the the entire psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to his children's children to such as keep his covenant, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, 
O my soul. Now, this psalm greatly centers on the theme of the forgiveness, the mercy of God. But there's also another refrain that is repeated over and over again. Do you notice it? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Repeated over and over again. That's kind of unusual, isn't it? Aren't we usually asking God to bless us? This says, bless the Lord, O my soul. We can bless God. Isn't that an amazing thing? That we, finite human beings, we can bless the Lord. We can lift up His name. We can make His heart glad. That's an incredible thing. That a finite, sinful human being, saved by His grace, we can actually bless Him. And really, when we worship, that's what we're doing, isn't it? We're not just here to receive from God, but to give to God. And worship is all about us recognizing Him for who He is, worshiping Him for who He is, not just wanting things from Him. Actually, the reality is we've already received so many wonderful things from God, haven't we? Forget not all His benefits, we read. When we worship, when we bless the Lord in our soul, in our spirit, we are remembering and recognizing with a heart of gratitude all of the things, all of the benefits that God bestows upon us every single day. Really, everything we have is a blessing from God. The very life that we have day to day, we wouldn't have it without God. So that is a constant refrain in this psalm. And I think largely because as David expresses this tremendous appreciation and joy as he thinks about the forgiveness and mercy of God, he can't help but say, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. We have a tendency, I'm afraid, to underestimate God. It can be a real shortcoming when we think of God and who He is and what He can do and we think of our lives and what our situations are and the obstacles we face. Sometimes we can underestimate God. But we need to remember that He is far beyond our thoughts and our expectations. He can surprise us. And he does surprise us repeatedly. And the very fact that he chooses to forgive us and save us is a tremendous and amazing surprise. Because it, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, we don't deserve that. Nobody deserves the forgiveness of God. And yet he gives it to us because of his compassion, his love that he so much wants to pour out upon us from the past acts of God we learn about who he is and David points to this when he talks about Moses he's made his ways known to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel and so David here hearkens back to what God had done in the past for Moses and for the people of God and we can do that too looking back Biblically, the way that God dealt with his people, we can do it in our own lives as we think about how God has brought us through 
situations and times that we didn't think we could get through those things. And yet God was, was there with his mercy and with his grace, with his kindness. When Moses met with God on the mountain to seek the restoration of the people of, of, of Israel, he said, or God said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's in Exodus 34, 6. And so we, we kind of hear a refrain of that, a part of that in this psalm, that God is slow to anger, that he is abounding in love, that he is faithful, and he maintains that love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. As David meditated on that word of God in Exodus, out of that comes, it appears, this particular psalm because there's so much of that statement in this particular psalm. What do we see here about God and his forgiveness? Well, in the first 11 verses that we read, God is ready to forgive. He is ready to forgive. We don't have to pull it out of him. We don't have to try to coax him to forgive. We don't have to try to work it up. God wants to forgive. He is ready to forgive. In fact, we have to avoid the forgiveness of God to not receive his forgiveness. We have to reject it because God wants us to be forgiven. And look what he's done so that we can be forgiven. Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for our sins. He rose from the dead. He offers forgiveness to all who will believe in him. He sends out his apostles and his followers to carry the gospel to people. So really for people not to be forgiven, they have to be avoiding the forgiveness of God if they've heard the gospel. Now it's our job to carry the gospel to people, but God is ready to forgive. This was the heart of, of what God said to Moses on that mountain. Israel had committed that terrible transgression against the Lord. You remember when Moses was on the mountain receiving the law of the Lord, the Ten Commandments written on the tablets of stone, what happened down below? The people were having a prayer meeting. The people were praying for Moses. The people were anticipating what God was about to do. No, they were being sinful human beings, weren't they? Instead, Aaron allowed the people, helped the people to make a golden calf and to defile themselves in sensual worship of the idol they made. They made the idol, the golden calf, and then they worshipped it. How ridiculous, right? They made it with their own hands, and then they worshipped it. And yet, that's still going on today, isn't it? The things people can make of their own will, out of their own imagination, they then turn around and worship that very thing, even though they know it has no power in and of itself. It has no authority. And yet, people, we do that all the time if we're not careful. And that's what the people of God did. Moses knew of the judgment of the Lord, and he knew 
what the people deserved. They deserved the wrath of God to be poured out. And yet, God granted mercy. He wanted to grant mercy, even in that kind of situation. Now, there was certainly judgment that came, but God did not throw away all of his people because of what happened. Instead, we see this mercy of God that God himself spoke about. The heart of the Lord is always ready to forgive. That's what he wants to do. We know that he's ready to forgive because he is compassionate. Merciful is what we find here spoken of in verse 8, 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. It's a word used of the feelings of a parent toward a child. If you have children, you know that feeling. Your heart is inclined toward your child. You want to be compassionate to your child, sometimes to a fault. But that is the word used here of God toward his people. He's like a parent in that feeling toward their child. They want to be merciful. They want to be compassionate. We know he's ready to forgive because he's gracious. The Lord is gracious. The scripture tells us, meaning he's inclined to forgive what we don't deserve when we don't deserve to be forgiven. And really, ultimately, there is no one who deserves to be forgiven. That's one of the, the, the worst things for a person to have a sense of entitlement in life. Entitlement. And it can begin right there with their attitude toward God. If they think that they are entitled to God's blessing and God's love, and God's forgiveness, and that God has to do for them all that they desire, then that's going to carry over in life too. Or the other way around. If that's the way they've been raised and they think that's what life is, they're going to make God in their own image. And they're going to seek out a theology or a philosophy that says that God is just there to do their bidding. That is not who God is. God, you see, is gracious, though. But it doesn't mean we deserve anything. We should be so filled with gratitude that God is gracious to us. And that ought to override all of our other thoughts and feelings as we go through life. Uh, Bill Mallory often says, if you ask him how he is, he says, better than I deserve. That's not a bad answer. That's really true for all of us. The attitude that whatever my station, whatever my situation, I'm still really better off than I deserve. And when we stand before God, that is certainly true. He is so much better to us than we deserve. And then we know he's ready to forgive because he's slow to anger. My goodness, what a difference. The biblical concept of God and any of the other religions of the world, for instance, Islam. The idea in Islam is that you're trying to appease God. You're trying to keep God at bay. God wants to zap you. God wants to judge you. And all that you do, you're trying to keep him from doing that. And the five pillars of Islam are designed 
uh, as you go through those rituals, you're trying to keep God from, in his anger, destroying you. That's, not a, that's certainly not a biblical concept of God, is it? That's not the God of the Bible, because God is slow to anger. Uh, if God was actually that way, my goodness, we would have all been destroyed long ago. But God is slow to anger. It doesn't mean he's incapable of anger, but it means that he holds his anger at bay. It isn't his first response. And as Paul talked about God's agape love, he described it as not easily provoked. Not easily provoked. That's the way we're supposed to be. The kind of love that God puts in us through Jesus Christ, not easily provoked. And that's the way God is. God is so good, and he is slow to anger and abounding in mercy. We know he's ready to forgive because of the greatness of his love. Well, how does it describe it? Look at verse 11. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And so... That's to a great extent, isn't it? As high as the heavens are above the earth. Uh, this great poetic statement is used to show just how great God's mercy, God's love is for his people. And so God is ready to forgive. Keep that in mind always. And that ought to make us want to come to him and bring others to him. Because he's ready. He desires to forgive. And he will forgive completely. That's the second thing about his forgiveness. He will forgive completely. And this is just almost too good that people can't accept it. And that's why we have so many denominations and, and uh, religious beliefs that don't believe that. They don't believe God forgives completely. It's as if God forgives momentarily or he partially forgives or he forgives until I do something really bad the next time. And then his forgiveness is gone. His relationship with me is gone. That isn't, that isn't the God of the Bible. That isn't the gospel. He forgives completely. When he forgives, it is complete forgiveness. He removes our sin completely. Look how he says it in another poetic statement, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, how far is the east from the west? You can't even really measure it, can you? I mean, it's just, it's, it's completely as far away as you can get. That's how far away God has taken and removed our sin. Uh, you can't say it any more strongly or forcefully that when God forgives, he forgives us completely. So the thing removed is not some mistake that we have made and God has just kind of overlooked it. It's saying God has completely removed it. It's gone. As far as God 
is concerned. The distance from east to west, one commentator writes, is eternal. It is infinite. If you start on a journey to the east, unless you turn around, you will return to your starting point and will still be going east. God will move it so far from you that it will never be found. Never be found. So when God forgives your sin, he forgives it utterly. He forgives it completely. Now, we may find it again. We tend to dredge it back up, don't we? We go looking for it. But that doesn't mean we superimpose that on God. That doesn't mean God is thinking about it just because we're thinking about it. God has removed it. And though we may go looking for it, it doesn't mean God is looking for it. Someone who accuses you in your memory, someone who's constantly bringing up the past, they may go looking for it, but that doesn't mean God is, is doing that. Because when God forgives you, he forgives you. The sin itself is gone forever. The memory of it may be in your mind or the mind of another person, but God as far as he's concerned, it is gone. God removes not only the sin, but the punishment. The punishment of that sin that we deserved. So uh, he says that very clearly here in this passage. That he has removed our transgressions from us. And no longer do we have to worry about that punishment W.E. Vine, in his expository dic dictionary, indicates that this word can be used for the punishment for the transgression as well as the transgression itself. Surely the Lord intends for us to see both here. When he removes the transgression, the punishment for that transgression goes with it. And we know where that punishment went, don't we? To Jesus. Jesus bore that punishment. That's why it's completely gone. Because the punishment for the sin, not only of, of myself and all of us here tonight, but the world, the sin of the world, was upon him. He bore our transgressions. And he took our punishment. The scripture says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he suffered the punishment that our sin deserved. And so that's why the scripture is clear that not only has God forgiven us completely, but the punishment of that sin is gone from us because it was laid upon Jesus. And God restores the relationship that sin has broken completely. And he talks about that when he says in verse 13, as a father pities his children so the lord pities those who fear him the relationship with the father is now possible for us to be brought together with him because the the sin has been removed the wall of transgressions has been torn down and the, it has been replaced with the love and the forgiveness of jesus christ and then finally, let's think about the, the, the impact of God's forgiveness. What happens when God forgives? It's, it has an eternal impact. Look at verse, verses uh, 
16 and following. For the wind passes over it. That's talking about man. Back in verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. So we, we are finite, aren't we? We're only here for a brief time on this earth. We're frail. But, verse 17, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. And so the forgiveness of God, it is eternal. It, 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 go, it is from everlasting to everlasting. It isn't momentary. It isn't, it isn't passing like we are. It goes on forever. And so we are held in his hand by his love and his forgiveness. And it's an interesting thing here that he says, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. What does that remind you of? In Exodus 34, the scripture says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And what that is saying, of course, is that our sin has great effect on generations to come. No one sins unto himself or herself. Yes, it is personal sin, but our sin affects those around us, and particularly children and the generations that follow. That's why it's such a grave thing when we decide we're just going to do our own thing and reject God and live like the devil. It's not just our life that's being affected. It's the life of everybody that we touch, particularly children, young people the ones that God entrusts to us in particular. But the converse is also true, as this bears out. When you receive the forgiveness of God in your life, it's not that your children are saved or forgiven just because you are forgiven, but it does have a great impact. Because it says, On those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. Just as our sin negatively can impact others, so our turning our life over to God and receiving His forgiveness, that can affect generations to come. Because the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ in us, living through us, touches and affects those that we come into contact with. And so it's so important for us to receive the forgiveness of God. And it does make it more likely that our children and our children's children will also receive the forgiveness of God. It's not a given, but it makes it a lot more likely that they will. And so it's so important as we come to faith that we can have that kind of impact on others. The forgiveness of God has an everlasting, ongoing impact. Not just in our individual life, but through us to touch the lives around us. And we might even dare say our entire society, our entire nation. A nation 
that is filled or has large numbers of people who have received the forgiveness of God, it cannot help but impact that entire nation or the place where those people live. Because the righteousness of a nation really is born out or made up of the righteousness of the people who live in that place. And so the forgiveness of God has everlasting, ongoing impact. And so it's so important for us to remember this incredible forgiveness of God. It is something that is truly beyond measure. D.L. Moody said, when God forgives you, they will be able to see that the lights of heaven have been turned on in your soul. I like the way he says that. When you're forgiven, it's as if God has turned on the lights of heaven in your soul. People can see the light of God, the light of heaven in you, in me, through us. And in a world of darkness, so much darkness, the world around us, they need to be able to see the light of heaven. The forgiveness of God makes that possible. And so this wonderful forgiveness of God, what a gift, what a treasure. May we enjoy it. May we be gra uh, have gratitude for it. And may we share it every day that we live. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, for this great psalm. It says so many wonderful things about who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, help us to not take for granted your forgiveness. But may it be something that we cherish each day and live in. And may our lives reflect your love and forgiveness each and every day and with all the people that we come into contact with. Lord, we know that sometimes we fall woefully short of being a good example and a reflection of your forgiveness. We sometimes are the opposite of the way you have treated us. Help us, Lord, this week in very practical ways to show forgiveness to those who don't deserve it, to give our forgiveness and our love and our compassion to people who need it so much. And we pray that you'll use us to touch the lives of others. In this time of invitation, Lord, help us to commit ourselves to doing just that. Commit ourselves to you as you lead us. And may you be pleased with the desires and the commitment of our heart. For we pray this tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take